afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, friends. I'd like to welcome you to our Daniel and Revelation Prophecy Seminar. Tonight, we're going to dig deep into Lesson 18. It's an exciting lesson. Um, we're going to look at the final phase of the judgment where God is going to deal with the problem of sin. Let's pray. Our loving Father in heaven, I want to thank you for another opportunity to open your word. Father, tonight we want to thank you that Jesus loves us. He had a, has a plan to rescue us from this planet of suffering, sin, and uh, devastation. And I just thank you tonight that your Holy Spirit will guide and lead and direct us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you'd like to join me at the top of page two or have a look at the visual feed, either way, you're welcome and thanks for joining us. Daniel has unveiled to us three phases of the judgment. Firstly, there's the judgment of the righteous. This is called the pre-advent judgment and takes place before Jesus comes back. We covered that in lessons 13, 14, and 15. Number two, there's the judgment of the wicked during the 1,000 years. And we also covered that in Prophecy Seminar Lesson number 16. And then the third phase is the actual execution of the judgment, which takes place at the end of the 1,000 years. So in this session, in this lesson, we want to study carefully the third phase, which is the execution of the judgment. The final phase of the judgment is the meeting out of punishments to the wicked. According to popular teaching today, a wicked person goes to hell as soon as he dies. Yet Daniel and Revelation have clearly revealed to us that the wicked are not judged until the thousand years and that they are punished at the end of the thousand years. Well, how could this be true if a lost person goes to hell when he dies? This lesson is very closely related to the previous one and will examine three main questions. Firstly, when does hell take place? Secondly, where does it take place? And thirdly, how long does the punishment last? Well, tonight, before we get into the lesson, I'd like to take you into a bit of a survey. Here's an article written by Nathan Brown. Surveys of belief often come up with interesting anomalies. Just have a look at the screen. For example, a recent study by the Barna Research Group compared Americans' understandings of the afterlife. The results are interesting, revealing a snapshot both of the state of belief and of human nature. So what did they learn in this uh, survey? 
Well, they found out that 81% of Americans believe in some kind of afterlife. That's interesting. That 76% actually believe there was a heaven. That 5% believed in some other form of existence. And that 71% actually believed in a place called hell. 39% actually had some idea of what hell was, and they thought hell might have been some place that was an eternal separation from God, while 32% believed it was an actual place of torment. So when asked, where do you expect to end up after death? 24% said, I've got no idea. 64% said, I'm heaven bound. Nice to have that uh, certainty, isn't it? but less than 1% expected to end up in hell. So most Americans think that hell is designed for other people. And I think the devil might have a bit of a laugh about that. What are we gonna discover in tonight's lesson? I have my five theme questions for you. Is hell happening now? Where does hell happen? Does forever actually mean forevermore or for eternity? Will hell last throughout all of eternity? And number five, does the Bible teaching on hell and the lake of fire really make any sense? Thank you so much for joining us in session 18, the final phase of the judgment. Tonight, we finish this whole series on the judgment. And next week, we start a brand new topic. So heading number one is Daniel and the fate of the wicked. And you might like to join me in question one. So what does Daniel say that the wicked will be resurrected? And we go to the book of Daniel and we go to chapter 12 and verse 2. Daniel was very clear that there were two resurrections. Let's see what he says. He said that, and many that sleep, which is the biblical word for death. That's right. And many that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So last time we dealt with the resurrection of the righteous, and tonight we're gonna to have a look at the second resurrection, which involves the wicked. Question two, what is the final fate of the LHP, the little horn power? Daniel 7:26 says, there's a judgment. But the court, which is the heavenly court, which is the true high court, shall be seated and they shall take away his the little horn powers dominion to consume and to destroy it forever so the final fate of the little horn power is assured he will not rule and reign forever he will be destroyed it's good news the little horn power is symbolic of all the wicked the note says who according to daniel will eventually be consumed and destroyed. Let's have a look at our second heading tonight. It's when will the wicked be punished? According to popular teaching, a wicked person goes to hell as soon as he dies. Therefore, punishment is received immediately after death. If this were true, how unfair would God be? Because if you remember, Cain slew Abel 6,000 years ago. So according to popular teaching, Cain would have gone to hell when he died and would have been burning ever since. 
Someone else commits a murder today and goes to hell at death. But poor Cain has to burn 6,000 years longer for the crime of being born 6,000 years earlier. I want to ask you, is that justice? Every sense of justice suggests that people be punished alike for the same crime. That takes us to question three. Our heading is, when will the wicked be punished? According to the Apostle Peter, when are the wicked punished? We go to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly, meaning the righteous, out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. This is a reference to the second resurrection to the wicked that they are going to be reserved for punishment. They're going to be kept for the day of judgment. Notice the Bible is very, very clear. There's a day of judgment. Let me ask you a question without notice. What would be the basis of the judgment? How is God going to judge us? What will be his standard in the judgment? And I guess many of you are saying his law, his Ten Commandment law, and you'd be right. If the wicked are reserved for the final day of judgment, they certainly can't be burning now. Now, I have a question that I've added into the lesson that's not in your lesson, so have a look at the screen. I'm asking the question, actually, where are the dead reserved? I'm going to take you to John 5, 28, 29. We're going to look at the words of Jesus. Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. So verse 25 is a reference to the voice of Jesus Christ. So where are the dead reserved? The wicked dead and the righteous dead. Jesus is very clear, isn't he? He says they are all in the graves and they will hear his voice. And they will come forth, those who've done good, to the what? The first resurrection, which is the resurrection of life, which begins the thousand years, as we studied a little while ago, and those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation, the resurrection of damnation, which takes place at the end of the thousand years. In other words, at the end of the time, God's people, the righteous have had 1,000 years in heaven to make sure God has made no mistakes in the judgment. What a loving God he is to give the righteous 1,000 years to review his books that no one is in heaven who shouldn't be there and no one is missing from heaven who should be there. Remember, there are two resurrections, the resurrection of life at the beginning of the thousand years, the resurrection of condemnation or damnation, the resurrection of the wicked who will then eternally perish takes place at the end of the thousand years. Join me at the top of page three and question four. When did Jesus say that the wicked will be burned in the fire? We go to Matthew 13, 40 to 42. Jesus wrote to, or Jesus said, therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, tares are an old English word meaning the weeds, um, they are gathered and burned in the fire, standing for the wicked, so it will be at the end of this age. The end of this age can mean the end of this world, the end of this existence. 41, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness 
and will cast them into the furnace of fire and there will be wailing and gnashing at teeth. So friends, this takes place at the end of the age. Jesus makes it clear that the wicked are not placed in the fire until the end of the world. So the question I want to ask is actually, when is the end of the world? And we're pretty much answering that in question number five. When does John the Revelator say that the wicked will be cast into the fire? So we've got a few verses to look at. Revelation 20, we're going to look at verses 7, 8 and 9, and then jump to 15 and then come back to 7. What's our question? What does John the Revelator say that the wicked will be cast? When does he say the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire? Here's our answer. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Friends, Satan believes that he can deceive the wicked who are outside the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which has come down from heaven with God's righteous. He believes he can take those, uh, well, yeah, millions, billions of people. The number outside the city is as the sand of the sea. Commentators believe that those who are outside the city far outweigh the number of the righteous who are inside the city. And you can imagine that that must absolutely tear at the heart of God. Well, what did they do? Satan and his evil angels and the wicked, they go up on the breadth of the earth, meaning the surface of the earth, and they surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. In other words, these are metaphors for the new Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven, and it says devoured them. Notice it didn't say it started devouring them. It said it devoured them, past tense. Friends, here is a modern illustrator, one of our own guys, Phil Mackay from Port Macquarie. And here we see the armies of the world arrayed. We see Hitler. We see a Roman general down there. We see some of the other great warriors of the earth. And they are opposing the coming kingdom of the new Jerusalem. And this is what Satan is organizing. And so we go back, to, or we go forward to 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So it's very clear on who's going into the lake of fire. These are the wicked because their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. We're going back to verse 7 to just get the answer. When does John the Revelator say the wicked will be cast into the fire? The answer is now when the thousand years have expired. So it's at the very end of the 1,000 years. The Bible is very clear on the question of when the wicked will be punished. They are not cast into the fire until the end of the 1,000 years. Let's go to heading three. Where are the wicked punished? Popular teaching today suggests that hell is going on in the center of the earth. The devil stands there with his pitchfork poking people into the fire continually. Obviously, this is fictitious medieval concept that has no place in modern thinking and no place in biblical teaching. Our heading is, where are the wicked punished? And question six, where does the Bible say that the fires of hell will actually take place? We go back to Revelation 20 and verse 9. They went up 
on the breadth or the surface of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. There's our answer. Some people say that the uh, hellfire takes place above the earth, some say under the earth, and some people even say within the earth, inside the earth. But the Bible's very clear. They went up on the breadth or the surface of the earth and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Notice the past tense here, devoured, not devouring. It's a finality. It's a finished and done experience. It doesn't go on for millions and millions of years. As the wicked encircle the city, fire comes down and destroys them. They are not inside the earth somewhere. They are right here on this earth. So question seven, how does the Apostle Peter describe the fires of hell? We've got five verses to look up. I'm going to add two more after that. We're going to look at 2 Peter 3, 7 to 14. Let's just take it step by step. Quite a few verses. We want to get more information on what are the fires of hell and give us some more detail. Peter writes, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word. In previous verses, Peter's been talking about God's word, his creative power of speaking things into existence. But the heavens, which means this atmosphere, and this earth, which are now preserved by the same word of God, they are now reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition. Perdition means damnation. It means hellfire. It means the destruction of who? Ungodly men. Is there any good news? Yes, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. So our time is not God's time. How does the Apostle Peter describe the fires of hell? The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment. So if it's reserved for fire, the good news is there is no hell fire burning now. So if you've been told your loved ones are in hell for whatever reason, then the Bible says, no, they are still reserved for fire until the day of judgment. Let's have a look at parts B and C, extra details. We go to verse nine. Here's a beautiful verse. This is the gospel that makes the heart to sing and the feet to dance. The Lord is not slack. He's not casual. He's not laid back concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long suffering toward us. God's patient. He's not willing that how many? Any should perish in that lake of fire, but that all should come to repentance. Friends, tonight I just want to challenge you and remind you that it's really important before you go to sleep to get down on your knees, connect with Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord, and ask him to forgive your sins and give you that overcoming power. In verse 10, but the day of the Lord, this is a reference to the second coming of Christ in the clouds with the angels, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, because no one's expecting it, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise 
and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Notice it doesn't say they'll be burning up, but burned up past tense. So the fires of hell, well, whatever's on the earth, the elements, they burn with an intense heat. The earth and the works that are therein will be actually burned up past tense. Here's a message for us. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, everything around us is going to be destroyed by fire. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? I have to ask myself right now, am I living a godly life? Am I kind and helping people who are worried and stressed out by what they see going on in our society right now? Are we reflecting the love of Jesus to them? In verse 12, God's people should be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. The note says Peter's picture of fires of hell is very clear. The entire world is engulfed in flames that totally destroy the surface of the earth. The world was destroyed in Noah's day by a flood of water. It will be destroyed the second time by a flood of fire that will totally annihilate the wicked. Well, what about the righteous? I remember years ago when I found this picture. I think it's somewhere in America, maybe California wildfires, and seeing the deer taking refuge in the river i thought it was fantastic so friends when the world is on fire what attitude should god's people take to it i'm going to go into verse 13 and verse 14 just where we were nevertheless we according to god's promise we should be looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells we, we want a place where there's no more sin and suffering where there's no more domestic violence where there's no more discrimination where there's no more fighting for your rights where everything is peaceful and everybody's respected that's fantastic isn't it that's the description of heaven therefore beloved peter the apostle writes looking forward to these things be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and be blameless how beautiful is that well we are at the top of page four and question eight when the fire is all over what does god create we go to the last chapter in the bible there we go to revelation 21 and we read and i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. So when the fire is all over, what does God create? It's a new heaven and a new earth. Now, when I want to go back to the text here. It says a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. What's that first heaven? Do you understand where is actually the first heaven? The Bible describes there's three heavens let's just review what they are some of you might know some of you might not know so the first heaven is the place where the birds fly it's called the midst of heaven or misu uranu in the greek this is the atmosphere around our earth this is called the first heaven 
Then there is the starry heaven celebrated in Psalm 19, 1 to 4. The heavens declare the glory of God, David writes. So the second heaven is the starry heavens. So would you be able to guess what the third heaven is? It's absolutely gorgeous, isn't it? So the third heaven, we don't have time to read all of this, but Paul writes that he knew a man 14 years ago that someone, this man was caught up to heaven. He doesn't know if the man went in his body or went out of his body. But he said such a one was caught up to the third heaven. So this is what we're looking for. Paul is actually speaking about himself, but he's being modest, so he puts it in the third person. Then he says, and I knew such a man, how that he was caught up into paradise. Friends, paradise is a reference to the third heaven. And that's 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 4, and that is the heavenly new Jerusalem. Let me share with you the note. We've just answered, when the fire is all over, what does God create? The answer is a new heaven and a new earth. Well, the heavens in this text refer to the atmospheric heavens, not the heaven where God dwells, 2 Peter 3, 7, and I've just explained where that is. The present surface of the earth as we know it will be totally destroyed by the fire. Then it will be returned to its original perfection by recreation. It will then become the final home of God's redeemed people, throughout all eternity all right well we've sort of been to heaven just in this little passage here but now we are going to go to hell how long are the wicked punished because the traditional view is forever and ever and ever and ever and this doctrine scared people half to death Popular teaching suggests that when people go to hell, they continue burning throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. In other words, they never, never stop burning. Notice one preacher's description of what hell is like. In the kingdom to come, there's a broad and large valley with a multitude of lost souls are suffering all the torments of the damned. Spanning the valley is a high bridge which gives a good view of the whole terrain. One of the joys of the saints is to go out on this bridge on the Sabbath day and view these poor souls. They see friends, relatives, father, mother, brother, sister, husband, or wife in torment. This is a feast for the eyes. See, it's a pitiful sight, the little child in this red hot oven. Hear how it screams. To come out, see how it twists and turns itself about in the fire. It beats its head against the roof of the oven. It stamps its little feet on the floor of the oven. You can see on the face of this little child what you see on the faces of all in hell. Despair, desperate and horrible. God was very good to this child. Very likely God saw that this child would get worse and worse and would never repent. And so it would have to be punished much more in hell. So God in his mercy called it out of the world in its early childhood. Friends, what a terrible picture of God. No wonder so many people view God as a tyrant when they think of God punishing people without end throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. There have been monstrous tyrants throughout history and they would torture people endlessly, but at long last, at least they allowed their victims to die.
However, some would have us believe that God is a worse tyrant than human tyrants. The teaching is that by some miraculous process, God keeps renewing people, keeping them alive so that he can keep on torturing them without end. No wonder the doctrine of an eternally burning hell has made more infidels or unbelievers and atheists than any other doctrine the devil has ever despised. I'm going to pause there and just share a little story. Robert Ingersoll, after leaving a tent meeting where he'd heard a preacher expound on the fiery tortures of the damned in hell and their intricate suffering, looked up into the starry heavens, shook his fist and said, God, if there is a God, I hate you. This man went on to become a renowned atheist and unbeliever. That's what that doctrine does. That's where that doctrine leads. Well, let's share with you some statistics on what the Bible says on this topic. The destruction of the wicked is a frequently mentioned subject in Scripture. In fact, it's referred to 182 times as complete annihilation. 98 in the Old Testament and 84 in the New Testament. 182 times Scripture declares that hell will end and that the wicked will never be anymore. Of course, there are five or six other texts that are not as clear. But as we look at them more carefully, we'll discover them to be totally in harmony with the rest of Scripture. Proponents of the teaching that hell will never come to an end have latched on to those five or six texts, completely ignoring the 176 clear texts of Scripture indicating the final total complete annihilation of the wicked. For an explanation of these five or six texts that are in harmony with the 182 clear texts of Scripture, please see Exhibit 1. So in Exhibit 1, and if you're watching this via video, I suggest that you pause this screen and read it or take a screenshot with your camera. It goes through the Bible passages about hell and explains them. The, the text in Revelation 20.10 that the wicked will be tormented forever and ever talks about fire unquenchable, everlasting or eternal fire, and everlasting punishment. Just in that first sentence, forever in the Bible is a period of time which is limited or unlimited, depending on what's being described. The word forever in the Bible is like the word tall. Tall has different meanings depending on what's being described, such as a dog or house or a mountain. So I'm going to give you a scripture that's not mentioned there, which uses the word forever. You might like to write this down in your lesson guide. I'm taking you to Exodus 21 verse 6, and it's talking about a master and his slave in terms of the word forever. Does the word forever mean eternity? Then his master shall bring him to the judges, and he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. And of course, he would then put a ring in the servant's ear to show he was a slave. An earring means the slave in ancient times. And he shall serve him how long? Forever. My friends, how can a slave serve his master forever? What does that word forever mean? Is it limited in any way? Yes, it is. It's limited by the servant's lifetime and how long he lives. It's actually limited also by the master's lifetime and also by the contract that he has for servanthood.
So the word forever can be a short period of time, a medium period of time, or a long period of time. But it certainly doesn't always mean eternity. I'm going to give you another example. Let's go to the story of Jonah and the whale. Jonah 2, 1, 5, and 6. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from out of the fish's belly. The water surrounded me, even to the soul, Jonah said. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Well, I guess if Jonah was in the whale forever, he wouldn't have survived, would he? In Jonah 1.17, we get the actual period of forever. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish. How long does the scripture say? Three days and three nights. I think there was a story just recently about a man, a surfer who was swallowed by a whale. I think it was here in Australia. It was an incredible story, wasn't it? And the whale also spat him out. Friends, that three days and three nights may have been less than that. If you know about the Bible's method of inclusive reckoning, we'll talk about that in regard to Jesus being in the grave or the tomb for the three days uh, later on in a future lesson. Um, then you can see forever is not forever in this case. Well, you use the same term. Uh, some people say the prophecy seminars I run go forever. <laughs> So uh, you can see it's a relative term. So there's the uh, exhibit. We've looked at the uh, tormented forever and ever, how long forever actually means, and the other examples are there. Let me summarize them. Let's have a summary of Prophecy, Examiner, Prophecy uh, Seminar 18, Exhibit 1. So forever in scripture means for a short time, a long time, or until death. It never means throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Then when you read about there being unquenchable fire, unquenchable fire cannot be put out while it's burning, but it goes out and when the material is totally burnt up, that's when it goes out. Question three, everlasting or eternal fire can refer to the effects of the hellfire, not to its duration. Maybe you're not sure what that means. Let me give you an illustration. I want you to imagine that uh, maybe next week my house burns down. And when you're talking to me about it, I said, yeah, my house is burnt down forever. I'm not referring to the duration. It didn't take forever to burn down. But this house with exactly all of my ornaments and uh, all of my books and mementos and photos and furniture can never be replaced exactly how it is today. And in that sense, we can use the word forever that Forever or everlasting or eternal fire refers to the effects of hellfire, not to its duration. Point four of the exhibit, what does everlasting punishment mean? Well, it means it's a past tense and therefore not a continuing reality. If it was a continuing reality, it would be everlasting punishing, but punishment is a past tense, finished, done deal. Revelation 21.8 clearly mentions the second death, confirming this view to be truth. Well, on the back of that exhibit, there's the story of a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. 
A parable is a story to illustrate a point. It may be a true story or simply a fabricated illustration. And you must remember that parables cannot always be taken literally. So I'd like to summarize these five points in this exhibit. If you're watching online, you can pause this and you can take time to read this yourself. Jesus did not mean that this parable was to be taken literally. So let's go through the points. Jesus is actually speaking about a Jewish parable, and he's actually expanding on a myth and legend that they used to tell themselves. And so Jesus says that Abraham's bosom is not the home of the saved. I mean, seriously, how can all the righteous be on Abraham's chest? It's absolutely impossible. It's not literal. Number two, those in heaven will not be able to talk with those in hell. That's absolutely correct. Number three, the Bible indicates that the dead, the good and the bad, remain in their graves. So that explains point two. Number four, the Bible teaches that men will receive their reward at the second coming and certainly not at death. And number five, a literal application of this parable makes Jesus contradict himself. So friends, Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus was the fifth in a series of parables. It was based on a common known Jewish myth, legend or story that Jesus based the parable on, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. But Jesus had four lessons to tell and one of them was not the state of the dead. Number one, he was teaching that riches are not always a sign of God's favour. Today we have the prosperity gospel that says that if you're not being blessed enough by God, you're not paying the church enough in tithes and offerings. Well, that's not a teaching of God. Number two, Jesus taught that poverty is not always a sign of God's displeasure. Absolutely, that's a great thought for everyone who's struggling financially. Poverty is not always a sign of God's displeasure. Also, after death, there's no second chance. And the fourth point, those who reject the scriptures will not be convinced even by miracles. So just summarizing Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, another dilemma that arises with a literal interpretation of this story could be called the mystery of the empty graves. Please look at the screen. We're not in the lessons just now. Now, if this was taken literally, apparently neither of the two leading characters, the rich man and Lazarus, spent very long time in their graves, both being whisked away rather than quickly, rather quickly to their respective places of reward and their bodies obviously came along too. For we find the rich man lifting up his eyes and desiring to have his tongue cooled by a drop of water from the finger of Lazarus, who was resting as we've seen in Abraham's bosom. Well, enough graves have been exhumed in recent years to know that the bodies of the deceased are carried neither to heaven or hell after burial. In fact, they finally turn to dust and wait there for the resurrection. So friends, from these few examples, we begin to see this parable. In this parable, Jesus was not trying to explain the physical realities of the afterlife. Instead, he was referring to the unfaithfulness of the Jews regarding their assigned responsibility to share the gospel with non-Jews. So as stewards of his special message of truth, they'd failed to utterly, utterly failed to share the gospel with the Gentiles 
who just were so eager to hear the good news of salvation in Jesus. So at the bottom of the back page of the exhibit, it says, in this parable, Christ was simply using a common belief of the day to illustrate the truth of Luke 16, 31. Namely, if a man refuses to be guided by the scripture, there's no hope for him. I want to give you a little bit more. Let's dive into the story of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and let's see if we can actually get to the punchline. We're in Luke 16, 30 and 31 on the screen. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. What's Jesus actually referring to here in this parable? What's he driving at? Well, let's go to the story, an actual resurrection. We're going to the story of another Lazarus, not the Lazarus from the parable here, but Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. We covered this the other session on death in lesson uh, 17. So here is Jesus and he's at the tomb of Lazarus. So Jesus commanded them to take the stone away. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Lucky he said Lazarus or all the righteous dead would have come out. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. We're in John 11. Let's go straight into verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed on him. So wouldn't you believe that everyone would now believe on Jesus because they'd seen a resurrection? Lazarus has seen four days. So there's no swooning, fainting Lazarus who just passed out and then came back from the dead. No, he's been dead four days. The body stinks. But some of them, 46, went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man, meaning Jesus, works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him, Jesus, to death. Friends, the point was that though one rose from the dead, some of the Jewish leaders, in fact, most of the Jewish leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, the High Council, the Sanhedrin, they were never going to believe in Jesus Christ. and that was the point of the parable. And what about this Lazarus when he came out? We know about the silence of Lazarus in John 11. He doesn't mention heaven. He doesn't mention hell. And the big question is about the silence of Lazarus. Why didn't he give Jesus a message from the Father? The simple answer is the Bible says that when we die, we sleep in the grave till Jesus comes. And that's where Lazarus had been. He had nothing to say. He hadn't been 
anyway. Would you join me back in uh, question nine? We're at the top of page five and we're in question nine. Our, our theme here is how long are the wicked punished? Well, what does Jesus say will be the ultimate fate of the wicked? John 3.16, I think we know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, why did Jesus say that we would perish if when we died we went to heaven or we went to hell? A stronger word cannot be found to describe the cessation of life than the word perish. Question 10, how does the psalmist David describe the fate of the wicked in Psalm 37, 9 and 10? For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. There's our answer. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place but it shall be no more. So what's the fate of the wicked? Well, evildoers, I think the scripture always says in the Old Testament, they'll be cut off out of the land, cut off, amputated, severed from Israel, dead. The wicked shall be no more. They will vanish away, but you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. There's some more points that we have to, uh, have to look here. Let's go on. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into smoke, they shall vanish away. How does David describe the fate of the wicked? The wicked shall what? They shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall vanish, and then they will vanish into smoke, because at the end of time, the lake of fire. A fire and brimstone that comes down from God out of heaven absolutely consumes them and into smoke, they vanish away. Here again is a picture of total and absolute annihilation. Well, will the fires of hell burn people up or will it keep on burning them? A finished work or a continuous work? Let's go to Malachi 4.1. It's very, very clear. And a lot of people who believe in the doctrine of an eternally burning hell have never seen this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all who do wickedly will be stubble. Friends, notice one of the chief characteristics of the wicked is their proud, rebellious, and arrogant attitude to God. They've turned away from him. They don't believe in him. They don't want to serve him. They don't want to obey him. They don't want to follow him. They don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And so all the proud, yes, and all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. So there's our answer. The day which is coming shall burn them up. So friends, it's not a burning and burning and burning forever and ever and ever. It's a finished work. It burns them up and the fires go out. Let's uh, just comment on the word stubble. A little bit of stubble, a little bit of whiskers can be annoying, but a little bit of stubble is not a lot of whiskers and it's certainly not a lot of wild grasses. And if a fire gets into stubble, I wanna tell you it moves like, I think they say, 
wildfire. Very, very quickly it burns everything up and then as quickly as it starts, it's gone. God uses stubble to describe the burning fire of the wicked. Question 13, when the fire has done its work, how much will be left? And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That's interesting. What does root nor branch mean? If you've got your pen handy, who is the root of all evil? Who is the root of all sin? The answer is Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent. So under root in your lesson guide, write in there Satan. And then his branches would be firstly his servants, his evil angels, and also then the wicked of all ages. When a tree is burned up, both the branches and its roots, there is nothing left of the tree. It's totally destroyed, totally consumed. It's totally annihilated. What is the only thing that's left of the wicked after the fire has done its work? We go to Malachi 4 and verse 3. We've been in verse 1. We're going to verse 3. You shall trample the wicked, Malachi writes, for they shall be, hmm, what? Ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. What are they going to be? They're going to be ashes. Why are they going to be ashes? Because the fires go out. You can't have ashes when a fire is still burning. And so that is a powerful text. What's the only thing that's left of the wicked after the fire has done its work? Ashes. Why do we say ashes? Because the fire has burned out. We say it's ashes because the fire has gone out. Friends, there's nothing left of sin and sinners but ashes. I'm asking you to come over the page with me to the top of page six and question 15. We're going to take you to the Middle East um, as a little excursion now. What two cities in the Bible are mentioned as examples of hellfire? We go to Jude 7. Jude only has one chapter, so we don't say Jude chapter 1 verse 7. We just say Jude verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah, these are very famous or infamous cities, aren't they? As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, going to talk about those in a moment, the cities around them, having given themselves over to what? Sexual immorality are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of what sort of fire? Friends, it says eternal fire. Now, I want to tell you that I have been to the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. I was there in the January of 1981. And I want to tell you that there was no fire burning. So the word eternal fire means that the work of the fire was thorough. It burnt everything up and it burnt them down forever. But it didn't burn forever. What two cities in the Bible are mentioned as examples of hellfire? The cities are Sodom and Gomorrah. These two cities are no longer burning. The fire burned until it had completely consumed and destroyed the city. Then it went out. Do you remember the story of Mrs. Lot? Mrs. Lot left something behind. She was told by the angels, do not look back. Did she leave her mobile phone or her handbag in the city? No, she didn't. She left 
her heart in the city. Her heart was for her beautiful home and for her extended family. Friends, what are the idols and gods that we have in our lives? What are the non-negotiables that we won't give up to have a 100% relationship with Jesus Christ? What's holding us back? If you know what it is in your life and you get on your knees and you pray to heaven and say, God, I can't control this addiction. I can't control this temptation. And I'm asking you to take it away. Will he take it away? I want to tell you that he will give you power over that temptation. And he will give you a way of escape that you may be able to bear that temptation. Friends, what an amazing promise. Well, the Bible states that these two cities are examples of what hellfire is like. When the fire has done its work, it certainly has to go out. Well, let me take you to that area. Do you remember here the Jordan River in Israel flows down into the Dead Sea? It flows, it flows, it flows, and the Dead Sea receives, receives, and receives until it becomes incredibly salty and dead. Notice at the bottom of the Dead Sea, there's areas there where it's all evaporating because of the salt content. They've got a salt works. And here are the five cities of the plain. And here we find Bab Edra, the ancient name the archaeologists say, that's Sodom. And next to it is Numera, which they say is ancient Gomorrah. Well, the Dead Sea is an amazing place. And when I was there in 1981, yes, that is me reading my Time magazine with tennis player Bjorn Bjorg on the front. Then uh, it's very greasy. It's very um, yucky to get in there. And if you have a cut, you'll be screaming. You'll be walking on water to get out of there with all that salt. Friends, I want to tell you that it says, writing about the time of Jesus, the Jewish historian Josephus noted that it was possible to see the remains of ancient cities south of the Dead Sea. Since at least the first century BC, historians have placed the biblical cities of the plain, I'll name them Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, also called Zor. Remember Lot wanted to fly, flee to Zor? The Lord said, why? Well, he said, well, it's not a real city, it's just a little one. Uh, so those five cities in that region. So friends, isn't that amazing? And so excavations of Bab Edra and Numera have been identified as Sodom and Gomorrah. If you notice those big pots on the right in the ground, that shows that the inhabitants there were so rich, they were buried standing up. And I noticed just the other day an ecological uh, funerals come along with an upright coffin to save room and land where you can be buried upright. I guess, uh, as I remember one of my uh, teachers once saying, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just an old dog with a new collar. Nothing new under the sun. And I think that's pretty right. Here is an illustration of some tree stumps covered by salt incrustations. That might give us an example of what Mrs. Lot might have looked like. And so here's a photo of me in 1980. Um, and we were actually able to go to this area and you can see there the compacted ash in the area of Sodom Gomorrah in the Dead Sea area in Israel. We hurry on to uh, section number five and we're at the top of page six, question 16. What does Jesus plan to do to Satan in Hebrews 2.14? Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, 
That just means that you and I have flesh and blood bodies, physical bodies. Jesus himself likewise shared in the same body that through death he, Jesus, might destroy him, Satan, who had the power of death, that is, Satan, the devil. Friends, how did Satan, the devil, get this power? Jesus came to destroy Satan because in Adam, in Eden, Adam and Eve gave up their power to Satan and they worshipped him and believed him over the Lord God. And so Satan usurped the power of death from the Lord God and took it out of the Garden of Eden. And Jesus came in his death on the cross to destroy him, that is, the devil. Not burn him for millions of years, but finally destroy him. That's good news, isn't it? How does God destroy the devil? We're told in Revelation 20 and verse 10. The devil who deceived them, the wicked, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I'm just going to pause here a moment to actually um, just help you understand what this means. How can they be tormented day and night forever and ever if it doesn't mean forever? Maybe we'll just go to the answer. The devil was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. How does God destroy the devil? The devil was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. In verse 10, the wicked are thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. Now, verses 11 to 15 reiterate, reiterate what verse 10 has said with a little further explanation. In verse 15, it's stated again that they are thrown into the lake of fire where they burn forever and ever. However, the next verse in chapter 21.1, it indicates that God then creates a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and earth where the wicked were being punished forever and ever has passed away. Hallelujah. The very context of Revelation 20.10 certainly indicates that it cannot last throughout all eternity. What can't last? That is hellfire, the lake of fire join me in question 18 what is this lake of fire also called in revelation 21 8 but the cowardly the unbelieving the murderers the sexually immoral sorcerers idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the what the second death there's our answer it's called the second death fear not dying in this world fear dying in the world to come, that second death. Please note that the fire results in death, a death from which there's no resurrection. This is the second death suffered by the wicked who are raised and destroyed in the lake of fire and they are damned for all eternity and they will not rise again. In Ezekiel 28, under the symbolism of the king of Tyre, God addresses Lucifer, that arch rebel, how does God bring an end to Lucifer? This is a very important question. How does he die? By the multitude of your iniquities or your sins, Lucifer, therefore I brought fire from your midst. Very interesting, isn't it? It devoured you. It doesn't say it was devouring you for millions of years. It devoured you, burned you up, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. So we're asking, how does God bring an end to Lucifer? 
The answer is, therefore, I brought fire from your midst. He devoured you and I turned you to ashes. Friends, this proves that what the Bible is saying is true. Continually, the wicked are devoured, they're burned up, and then they're turned into ashes. God could do a miracle and keep those wicked alive for millions of years. He could do that. He could do that, but he doesn't do it. Why doesn't he do it? Because he loves us. He wants to be. He wants this time of pain and suffering to pass very quickly. Notice all of this takes place on top of the earth, not inside, above, or under the earth. Under question 19, the note says, again, notice the strong language used to describe the destruction of Satan. He's destroyed by fire. He's devoured and reduced to ashes. The fate of the wicked is the same fate that awaits Satan himself. So we ask, will Satan still exist in the fire? We go back to Ezekiel 28, 19. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Friends, there is some good news. Satan is going to be destroyed and he is not going to live forever. He's not going to be with his angels and immortal being. Praise God. Thanks. Thank God. Shout praises to God. We don't have to worry about Satan getting out of hell. Hallelujah. God will forever bring an end to Satan. What a glorious truth. Friends, Satan is not in charge of hell for all eternity. Is he, is he an immortal being unable to die? No, he's not. We already know. In 1 Timothy 6.16, we looked up in the last session, Prophecy Seminar Session 17, that Jesus Christ, the Father, and the Holy Spirit alone have immortality. So we don't have Satan living forever, even in the lake of fire. Our final heading tonight is the end of sin. What are the wages of sin? We go to Romans 6.23. I think we know that answer pretty well. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, the penalty for sin is not everlasting life in hell, but death. God does not offer us a choice between life in hell or life in heaven. The choice offered us is life versus death. If a person burned throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity in hell, amazingly, he would still receive eternal life. It certainly would not be a pleasant life, but it would still be life, and he would never receive the wages of sin, which is death. Hellfire is not the punishment for sin. Death is. The fire is only the means to bring about the end, which is death. If the fire does not result in death, then it is not the punishment of sin. Well, we now ask who only has eternal life. We go to 1 John 5, 11 and 12. This is great news for Jesus' followers. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. Amen. And this life is where? In God's Son. He, you and me, that has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. There's our two answers. It's eternal life. Friends, what do we have to have here with the Son? The missing word is that we have to have a connection. We have to have a relationship. We have to be possessed by the Holy Spirit and the Son of God. Life is available only through Jesus Christ. 
Only those who have accepted Christ as their saviour have an everlasting life. Without Christ, there can be no life. Satan would like us to think that we can have life without Christ. If eternal hell were true, that would be possible. That would be possible. But scripture is just too clear. There is no life apart from Jesus Christ. I know that this um, illustration is a very old illustration. We there have on the right, Lucifer, Satan in his red smoking jacket, and this man making what we call the great decision. I want to tell you that Satan and his evil angels study you every day, friends. They look for a chink in your armor. They look to see whether you're connecting strongly with God's word during the day and how often you pray. They know what your weaknesses and temptations are and they set up situations where you'll be tempted more than you are able if you are not kept by the power of prayer. I want to encourage you right now to remember that tonight you can get on your knees, confess all your sins to Jesus. He loves you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to have a strong relationship with you. And he wants to keep you from the power of Satan. You can ask for strong angels that excel in strength to come down and protect you and guide you. I love Psalm 34, 7. But the angel of the Lord encamps around about them that fear him, God, and delivers them. That's Psalm 34, verse 7, one of my favorites. Claim the angel of the Lord coming down to camp around about you and deliver you from whatever you're going through. On Calvary, question 23, Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He suffered the second death for us. Is Jesus still being punished on the cross today or did he die on the cross? Now, that's a good question. John 19, 30 and 33. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, notice this is a reverse of normal. A man dies and, uh, yeah, he, he dies and the breath leaves him. And uh, then his head slumps forward. But Jesus bows his head first, the heavenly father bows in submission to the father. And then he gives up his breath, the spirit of life. But when they came to Jesus, the Roman soldiers, and they saw that he was already dead they did not break his legs as the prophecy said is jesus still being punished on the cross today or did he die on the cross the answer is that he was already dead and that he died the note says the fact that jesus died on the cross is the strongest evidence against the pagan doctrine of eternal torment for the origin of this doctrine see exhibit two if you're watching this online, you can uh, pause that and have a read of that. There's actually more pages to the exhibit, which are not given on the screen. But I'm now going to take a moment for you to have a break. And I'm going to summarize a brief history of how the doctrines of eternal torment and the immortality of the soul entered the Christian church and how they are linked together. Point one, the Bible teaches that death is asleep and the wicked are utterly destroyed at the end. Of the 1,000 years. Point two, the doctrine of the immortality of the soul came from Satan the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He said two things to Eve that tricked her. She was beguiled. He said, firstly, you shall not surely die. That's the foundation of all immortality of the soul doctrine. Secondly, he said, you will be 
like God's or you'll be like the Most High God. You will know stuff that you don't know now. And so Eve, being a brave New Age woman, took a step up, she thought. But in stepping up, she stepped us all down into sin and suffering and death. Point three, this pagan doctrine was further developed by Oriental, Egyptian and Persian religions. Four, Plato, the Greek philosopher, gave immortality teaching great influence in the fourth century BC. And then the Jews introduced this Platonic view of immortality of the soul into the Jewish church just prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus strengthened the biblical Old Testament view of the mortality of man and death as asleep so that for 150 years after he died, the early church had no problems with this satanic doctrine. Then the early church fathers like Justin Martyr were dismissive of those who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead and promoted himself, the immortality of the soul, as a biblical teaching, but it wasn't. Two early church fathers, Athenagoras, 188 AD, and Tertullian, or Tertullian, 240 AD, both promoted the immortality of the soul and eternal torment in hellfire as new teachings, but they were pagan. The new teaching on eternal torment stated that if a soul couldn't die, it would have to burn for the ceaseless ages of eternity. And friends, here's where it all comes together. Because of the teaching of the immortality of the soul, then people in the lake of fire can't burn up. They are immortal, undying souls. And so then with a false doctrine that you can't die, you can never die, then in the lake of fire, you have to burn forever. And that's where the teaching of the eternal torment doctrine comes from. You know, some churches actually teach this to scare people into heaven or into the Christian church. I don't think it's a very good sales pitch. If you don't follow Jesus, you're going to burn in hellfire forever. Friends, we've already discussed that that hellfire doctrine turned more people away from God because they couldn't see his heart of love than anything else combined. Point number 10. Now, Christianity's God, it seemed, could not conquer the problem of evil and had eternal sinners unable to be destroyed, burning in hell forever and ever. So I'm going to ask the question, if Adam and Eve were already immortal, if they were already unable to die, why did God stop them from going to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? Why did he bar that from them? The final point in the exhibit, Jerome and Augustine, the great church fathers, made these two doctrines so predominant that they became a foundation the Christian church accepts without question, even today. Friends, a very old illustration, but here we have Adam and Eve about to sacrifice a lamb for their sins. The boys Cain and Abel, and guess what? Those angels are barring them from going back into the Garden of Eden, through the gates into the garden, and barred them from access to the tree of life because daily they went to eat from the tree of life and that gave them the ability to live. The note, our saviour paid the penalty for our sin. That penalty was death, not burning through all eternity in hell. God will deal with the sin problem and he will totally destroy sin and sinners.
They will be no more. God has done the only thing that a just God could do in destroying sinners. But praise God, he's not a pagan tyrant. He is just. And he is also merciful. Well, here's a quote from the Great Controversy, page 678. It's a beautiful way to finish this lesson. Finally, the Great Controversy has ended. The fires have gone out. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats throughout the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness through the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things animate and inanimate in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy declare that God is love. Friends, I've got good news for you. Have a look on the screen. Jehovah our God can end sin, sinners, Satan, evil angels, death, the grave, and hell. And I hope you're all saying hallelujah and amen because that's how powerful our God is. You have to be a powerful God to be able to solve the sin problem. And this is how he does it. What did God do so that you don't have to perish in hell in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, I'm sure you've written there that Jesus was the one that God gave, the Lord God gave his son. Before we begin and grab your pen, I've got two more texts that will reassure you that God loves people. Write down Ezekiel 33 and verse 11. Is God trying to kill people? Let's have a look. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure, no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? This tells us God's trying to see how many people he can get into heaven, not how many people he can keep out. He's our forever friend. Isn't that a beautiful text? Here's a second text that you probably don't have. Write down Isaiah 28, 21 in the King James. Isaiah 28 and verse 21. For the Lord will rise up. He will be angry. It's the day of judgment that he may do his work, his strange work and bring to pass his act, his strange act. Friends, what's the strange work? What's the strange act? Some versions say it's his alien work. It's his alien act. What work of God that God has to do is actually against his nature and character of love? Well, you can see it on the screen. It's the work of Satan. It's the work of destruction, of destroying people, of ruining lives. And so, friends, this tells us that God, with tears in his heart and in his eyes, has to do the work of the destruction of the wicked. They don't want to be in heaven. They don't want to be with God's people. They don't want to worship Jesus. They just are full of hatred and rebellion. And God mercifully allows them to go to sleep in the lake of fire. Are you thankful that a merciful and just God will destroy sin and sinners, but that he will not punish them throughout all eternity? I'm not sure what you're going to write there, but I'm writing, yes, I am, because some of these people might be our family, our friends, workmates, neighbours, etc. It's a solemn thought. 
well, what did we discover in tonight's lesson? We've discovered is hell happening now? No, hellfire has not started burning yet. And where does hell happen? The lake of fire will be on this earth, the breadth of this earth. Does forever always mean eternity in the Bible? No, the word forever does not always mean for eternity. It can be for this much, for this much, or for this much. Will hell last throughout all eternity? No, the lake of fire will go out and the earth will be recreated. Five, does the Bible teaching on hell and the lake of fire make any sense? Yes. No one is suffering from hell now and no one will burn forever. Isn't that great news? Well, I'm excited. There's three people who are all on the same score in the quiz. And uh, here's another opportunity tonight. By the way, some of these response questions give you heads up in terms of answers to the quiz questions. Did you ever work that out? Maybe you can think about that now. Question one, if you are thankful that God will not torture people throughout all eternity, but will totally destroy the wicked in the fires of hell, meaning a short work, would you like to tick box number one? Two, if it's your desire to serve God, not out of fear, but because you love him for what he did on the cross for you, would you place a tick in box number two or say yes in your heart to Jesus tonight? Number three, if you still have some unanswered questions about hell or the lake of fire or God's judgment of the wicked, then you can tick that box or write the question on the back of an envelope or contact me in the way that is easiest for you. Let's go through our quiz questions. I have a feeling tonight there might be hmm, three negative questions, but I won't tell you how many positive questions. We have five quiz questions tonight. Question number one, when a wicked person dies, they go straight to hell. True or false? When a wicked person dies, they go straight to hell. True or false? Number two, since God does not enjoy hell, he's put Satan in charge of poking people into the fire. True or false? So God doesn't enjoy it, so he gives Satan the job of putting people into the lake of fire. Is that what the Bible said? Number three, hellfire totally consumes, it burns up and destroys the wicked as they attempt to attack the holy city, the new Jerusalem, at the end of the 1,000 years. True or false? Number four, the wicked are destroyed in the fires of hell, but Satan can't be destroyed because he's a spirit being. The wicked are destroyed in the fires of hell, but Satan can't be destroyed because he's a spirit being. So he just lives on and on and on. True or false? Number five, the doctrine of an eternally burning hell comes from ancient paganism and it does not come from the Bible, meaning it does not, it is not taught in the Bible as a doctrine. It's mentioned in the Bible, but it's not taught from the Bible. All right, let's do our answers. Question one, the answer is false. Question two, the answer is false. Question three, the answer is true. Question four, the answer is false. And question five, the answer is true. Our answers tonight from one to five are false, false, true, false, true. False, false, true, false, true. Three false, two, true. Friends, in our wall of truth in the Prophecy Seminar in Daniel 12 tonight, we learned that hellfire destroys Satan, sin, and sinners. And that's the end of our big 
section on the judgment. This covered lessons 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. That is done. Well, where are we heading next week in Prophecy Seminar Lesson 19? Do any of you out there like food? We're going to find out what's the Genesis diet? Why does God forbid certain types of food and drugs? Are there good reasons? What does he know? Remember, he is the creator. And why is it important to guard the mind and body against damage from certain types of foods and drugs? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sharing with us tonight from your word so clearly that you love all of your children. You are tortured by the thought that your children who reject you have chosen to be separated from you for eternity and go in the lake of fire. We know that you will do everything you can through your Holy Spirit and Jesus' death on the cross to save them. We know that once we understand the gospel, which is the good news of salvation in Jesus, that we are to tell our friends, families, and loved ones that Jesus loves them. He's coming back soon. We are living in the time of the signs of the end, the signs of Jesus soon coming. The earth is falling apart. The nations are angry. We have pandemics, pestilences, earthquakes, and uh, wars and rumors of wars. So Lord, we know from Matthew 24 that Jesus coming is soon. Make us ready for that day. And may we be there with loved ones, friends, and families. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the Book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word. That's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.